welcome to the second episode of Vanished in the Valley. I am your host, Athena, and I'm here with Ken. Hi, everybody. Know us. So, this is uh, our second episode, and it is a doozy. Let me tell you. So, it's about this girl named Carissa Shell. She is from Turlock, which is located in the San Joaquin Valley. It's actually out kind of by me. Um, not really rural, but it's definitely suburban. Um, I've heard this, I don't know if it's true, but supposedly there's more churches per, per square capita than any other city in the entire United States. Um, and this story takes place back on April 21st of 2011, so almost 10 years at this point. Uh, let's see here. Carissa was born December 11th, 1994, and when this story is taking place, I believe she's like 15 years old. 15 years old. Okay. Yeah, so she's pretty young. Um, just some from like some of the armchair detective work I've done. I went to her Facebook and started going back, and some of it's kind of concerning to say the least. Um, I'm not gonna sit here and judge her because God knows what would show up on there if that stuff was around when I was a kid coming up. Absolutely. But basically, most of it's talking about like getting really drunk or getting quote unquote fucked up and. Talking about her ass, just stuff you probably don't want, you know, 20 years looking back, you're like, damn, why did I write that stuff? But she's a kid, so come on, give her a break, people. So, this story, um, what I found on the internet, actually, I found her on the Department of Justice website, along with all the other places, that's how I find all of our cases. And something about her case just kind of stuck out to me, so I looked it up online, and the story online is... She's at her friend's house, and sometime around 2 o'clock in the morning, she steps outside and says, I'll be right back, guys, and is vanishes. Never seen again, no word from her on her cell phone, no bank activity, nothing. Just totally vanishes that night. Um, apparently, the Turlock PD classify this girl as a runaway, and I'm not sure people that were with her last were questioned. The last place she was seen wasn't checked forensically. Nothing was... Fortunately, I think that kind of contributed to where we're at today with her being listed as a missing person. So, Turlock PD, at some point in the investigation, switched her from a runaway to missing. So, I'm not exactly sure what prompted them to change that. I'm going to try to speak to some of the detectives on her case tomorrow. And I say some of them because online you find like three or four different detectives' names listed on her case. I'm not sure exactly why that is. Okay, let me ask you something. From the time that the initially started, how long after that before they changed her status? From what I can find, it's like... I'm not exactly sure, but it looks like six months in. Okay, so we definitely need to try to find out what prompted. For sure, that's, yeah, that's definitely going to be one of my questions for them tomorrow, amongst many other things. Um, and apparently, like, like I said, the story online says she's at her friend's house, and I find out later on from interviews with her family that's not the case. Nothing is as it seems in this case. And apparently, she, uh... She she's probably not missing. I what I'll, I'll wait till the end actually to get into what I think actually happened to her. But I don't think she's missing at this point. I unfortunately think she's dead. Uh, what is it? Nine years. Yeah, exactly. Nine years of a kid just missing. It like just fell off the face of the earth. 
exactly. And I don't know about you, but when I was like 14, 15, there's no way I could have disappeared for that long without the help of an adult. Um, and if some adult helps a child disappear like that, that sounds like kidnapping to me. No longer. Yeah, it's not runaway. It's none of that. That sounds, I, I mean, if I was a parent and my 14-year-old daughter just disappeared and I found out an adult helped her, there would be hell to pay. Oh. I would make sure they were prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. I would think so. So, Carissa is missing. I know she's got brothers and sisters that miss her and are still looking for her. They don't know what happened to her. Uh, I've heard that she was profiled on America's Most Wanted. I looked for the episode and I actually couldn't find it. Um, But I'll keep looking and if I find it, I'll put it up on our web address. Or actually our, our Instagram. You guys can find that too. It's Vanished in the Valley on Instagram. If you guys have any questions, you can also email us at vanishedinthevalley at gmail.com. And we actually have a Facebook up and running now. It's Vanished in the Valley. So. Okay, I would like to add to that. Since the case is so vague, we're actually uh, reaching out to the Vanished in the Valley community. If they have anything that they can offer to the case, we do encourage them to call in or to uh, hit us on uh, email and, sure, and uh, that would be awesome. contribute whatever they got. Because it sounds like I think some people know what happened. And I think it's those people that she was with that night. So, I mean, obviously I can't prove anything. Um, and from doing different interviews, I've heard that it can get dangerous looking for this girl. I've heard these people have been threatened while looking for her. Um, and just kind of crazy stuff surrounding this case. And now that I know a little bit more, I'm actually not surprised that it got dangerous for this family members looking for her. Um... I just, I just, like I was telling you when I first saw this case, something just kind of struck me with, we need to pick this girl and we need to figure out what happened to her. Profile her, absolutely. Yeah, hopefully we can get to the bottom of it because she was a kid when she went missing and now she's 25 years, she would be 25 years old. So hopefully, Carissa, if you're still out there, people are looking for you, your family loves you, they miss you, and get in contact if you can. If you can, really. Or like like Kenny was saying, anybody in the Vanished in the Valley fans, if you guys know anything about this case and can expand upon it or give us information, please let us know. This case has gotten so crazy since I started it, I'm thinking it's going to have to be a multi-part situation just because there's no way I can get all this information in a 30-minute spot. And there's so much I don't even know yet. Like I was telling Ken earlier, I want to get a hold of the Turlock PD, and I've got so many questions for them on why they handled this case the way they did, and what kind of a case is it now? Is it a cold case? Is it worked on still? As we get further into the case, um, it's also going to intersect with a murder that happened, and not just any murder, a murder where three police officers were actually charged in it. So, it's a crazy case, and I'm not sure where it's going to lead us in the end, but like I said, Vanished in the Valley people, if you know anything, please let us know. So, it's about, like I said, it's like 2, 3 in the morning, she walks out the door and she tells her friends she'll be back. I guess she had plans with these people later on, and none of that actually happens, so... I've heard a whole bunch of different stories. Some One story is she just walks out and vanishes. Another story is she gets into a white truck and never to be seen again. Um, so I'm not exactly sure what the real story is. And the person saying she got in the white truck is foster mother? Well, that's 
kind of what I've, I've heard. So I guess I'll bring you back to the, the beginning of that. So online it's saying that she was at her friend's house the night she went missing. And actually that's not right. She's at the foster mom's house like you were just saying. And the whole foster mom situation, not one area on the internet has said it the correct way. They're all identifying this house as her friend's house. And it's not her friend's house, it's her foster mom's house. And apparently that night she's there with a biological brother, foster mom, and biological dad. Yeah, it can get super complicated. <laughs> so, um, and I just, I will, I'd like to say, uh, I was able to interview her brother, Christopher. Chris gave me some great information. Um, a lot of areas that I need to basically explore a little further. Planning on going to Turlock tomorrow, so hopefully when I go there, I can get some of this stuff cleared up. But we, I don't know, like I'm saying, it's going to have to be more than one episode. Um, just because that night, I'm hearing she shows up around 9 o'clock at the foster mom's house, and she seems kind of buzzed. At some point during the night, she gets really, really high, like messed up. She's described as eyes rolling in the back of her head. She can't keep her eyes open. At some point, she goes into a dark bathroom and stays there for 20 minutes. I'm assuming passed out or something. Uh, She comes out of the bathroom, and... This next little part is, I've, I've heard it described as completely out of character and something she would not normally do, but I guess apparently she starts trying to make out with one of her foster brothers. And I've been told that she didn't even like this guy. Like, there's no way, if she was in her right mind, she'd be trying to make out with him. So I'm not exactly sure what that's about. Yeah, really? What the hell is that about? Yeah. It would be too far-fetched. I mean, if they foster brothers, I haven't heard of that yeah, I know. I mean, it's definitely, like, not her making out with a biological brother. Yeah. But, I mean, just from what I heard, she didn't even like these guys. So, I was like, why is she trying to make out with them? So, but who knows? Really? Um, so, I guess at some other point in the night, she comes downstairs, and she's holding, like, a bag. She's trying to leave. And in the bag, it's just got different pairs of underwear. Nothing else, just underwear. And I'm not exactly sure what she was planning on doing with it, but she's also looking for a black lighter. For some reason, this black lighter is super important to her, and she wants it before she leaves. Uh, I don't think she ever ended up leaving. What ended up happening is described by the foster mom as she goes and lays down in this little loft area they have and goes to sleep. And foster mom initially says that's the last time she sees her. It's passed out in this loft area asleep. So... I guess a little bit later on in the night, um, she wakes up, and like I'm saying, like, it depends on who you talk to, what happens next. Apparently, according to her biological brother, she leaves, and she's seen getting into a white truck. Now, apparently, one of the foster brothers owns a white truck, but they're saying that the foster brother is not the one that left with her. He was still at the house when she left. I don't know how true that is, though. And who's substantiating that? This is the foster well, providing this information? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's going to... The information is one point provided by the biological brother and another point provided by the foster mom. So we're not sure who to believe and if you can believe anybody in this case. Yeah, uh-oh. That's the hard part here. Um, 
So, I guess when she first arrived at the house, uh, like I said, it was like 9 o'clock, and I guess apparently she was upset. She had told this man, I'm saying a man because he's 26 years old and she's like 15, 16, mm. that she had feelings for him and she wanted to start a relationship. And this guy, his name is Corey Kaufman, and he was smart and, you know, tells her, no, that's not going to happen. You know, that's jailbait waiting to happen at this point. <laughs> But the reason why it's important that we remember Corey Kaufman is he ends up getting murdered a few months down the line. And three officers are actually charged with first-degree murder in this case regarding Corey. So, like I said, this the case just gets murkier and murkier as we go. It's really hard. Yeah. It's really hard to, to figure out who's telling the truth and what's a red herring and what actually happened. Um, so apparently she leaves. The foster mother has told Christopher that, uh, Carissa left with Corey Kaufman, which I've heard is completely false, that he wasn't there that night, and he has nothing to do with this night. But the foster mom is fingering him at this point. Yeah, so her biological brother has stated that he saw her leave in the white truck, never to be seen again, vanished in the San Joaquin Valley here. Um... Christopher says that he doesn't think that she left with Corey, um, but he's also quick to point out he doesn't trust any of the statements that were said about what happened to her that night. So, and it's not like we could fly nowadays where a 14, 15 year old just is vanished and the police chalk it up, oh, it's a runaway. We don't got to investigate. So, apparently later on that day, um, everybody at the foster mom's house are evicted. Sheriff comes, gets them out of the house, and at one point there's even accusations of the police that are evicting them doing drugs with the residents at the house. Like I said, I can't substantiate it. I'm just repeating what I've been told in different interviews. So I, I don't know. I have had personal dealings with the Turlock PD, and to go as far as thinking they were going to cover up murder, yeah, which, really. you know... I just, I don't know with this case. I don't know who to trust. And, you know, I kind of just have to go on what I can find on the police reports and speaking to our family members. So now it's like 10 years later. No one's heard anything from Carissa. Um, Her mom, I think, is, yeah, her mom is the one that actually filed the missing person report on the 21st when she couldn't get a hold of her. Uh, the police have come out and said that she, you know, has never run away before. She had a great relationship with her family. Um, so I'm not sure why she's classified as a runaway. That would be some great information to get from Trollac PD, and hopefully I can get that from them tomorrow. Um, so, like I said, there's, I guess, two foster brothers there that night and the biological brother. Um, I'm speaking, I actually, I spoke to Chris, her biological brother, and I got a lot of good information from him. He spoke to her the night before she was missing, and she was in tears. She was extremely upset on the phone to him. She thought someone was going to come take her. And Chris wow. isn't, yeah, Chris isn't exactly sure who she thought was going to come take her. At one point, he thinks that she says CPS. But he thinks about it later on, and he's not so sure that's exactly what she said. But he's not 100% on what she said. But the night before she goes missing, she's definitely upset and afraid someone is going to take her. So are these sex traffickers going to come take her? I I don't know, because I asked him, like, did she have older friends 
that possibly could have groomed her or helped her, quote-unquote, run away. And he said, yes, she did have older friends. So that that could be a possibility. Uh, we don't know. Maybe she was sex trafficked, and I, I really hope that's not the case, because that's got to be a horrible life, but we don't know. Yeah, well, if you're moving around inside the country, you know, I think you're going to alert somebody to your presence. Yeah, you would think so. You know, so. Time, nine, ten years, I mean... Yeah, no social security. Yeah, it's yeah. hard to function without running into. Yeah, exactly. You know, some kind of checks and balances. Yeah, she would have to use her social to get a job or to even to apply for an apartment. Okay, now wait. Well, who would that? Who thought they might have spoken to her the day after she was reported missing? So Christopher says the day after she was reported missing, one of her friends may have talked to her. But it was through text message, and we all know anybody can oh, pick up a phone. Really, yeah, it could have been anyone. Oh, so wow. we're not sure. And another crazy thing in this case is Chris had a video mailed, like emailed to him or sent to him through his phone, and the person sending it said, This is your sister. And in the video, I actually watched it, is a girl that's tied up, and somebody has a stick that's on fire, and they're poking this poor girl with the fire. And she's kind of like on a swing set, it almost looks like. And the video fades out, and they stick the fire directly beneath her, like they're about to burn her completely up. So I'm not sure why someone would send that to him. Uh, I'm not sure that it's Carissa. I don't know. Okay, and in your estimation, after watching the video, does it seem authentic to you? Or does it look like uh, somebody's trying to pull the wool over somebody? Or does it look like somebody's um, actually being tortured? It's hard to say. It definitely looks like someone's being burned because they stick this girl with that in where the flames are on the stick. And wow. it definitely looks like they're burning her at one point. Uh, um, is it possible to know if the police are aware of that? I don't know if the police are aware of it. It seems like, I'm not sure, Like I just don't think they, the family has the, the greatest relationship with the Turlock PD. And just from everything I've read, I can completely understand why. They just seem to get brushed off, and I don't know if it was some prejudice on the police part going in. If the police are there doing drugs with them, it seems like they would have a rather good relationship if that's the case. I mean, I, mean, I don't know. It's so hard to say what's true and what's not in this case. I don't know. Um, I Like I said, I can just go with what I've gotten in interviews from the family, and I can go from the police report. Um, but I just, from the, the start of this case, the ball was dropped. I don't care. Anyway, you look at it, the police did not do their job. They should have investigated more. It was more extensively than that. Yeah. And it's based on the, the way she was labeled is what restricted the investigation. I think so. And, yeah. And, yeah. you know, she's a foster kid, and I don't know if they just thought, oh, she's a throwaway kid, she's just a runaway, even though it's said multiple times she has a good family relationship and's never run away before. So I'm not exactly sure. That's why I think we're going to have to make this a multi-part episode, and hopefully when I speak to Turlock PD, I can speak to a detective and they can give me some answers. Okay, now you did say her biological father is present at the location, or he was a, he was there when it's all Exactly, took place. yeah. So supposedly her dad is there that night. He, he doesn't actually have like a relationship or anything with the foster mom. He's just kind of crashing there, because at the time he was homeless. Okay, so is there any way possible you could probably reach out to him and get some feedback? I can, but it's like I've tried numerous times, and most people don't want to talk about it, or they just ignore me. So oh, wow. I can keep trying, and hopefully 
more family members come forward some with some information. Um, but like I said, it's been really difficult on this one. I'm getting conflicting stories, I'm getting no stories, and I'm getting outright no's I don't want to talk to you. That's strange. I mean, yeah. You would think people would want to cooperate or help to the best of their ability to bring the loved one back. I know, you would think so, but like I said, in the beginning, this case is totally nothing as what it seems. So I'm like taking everyone and everything with a grain of salt. And just kind of doing my own investigation, and I'm going to have to, you know, like you, come to our own conclusions at the end of it. So, I don't know, I'm thinking tomorrow I'll go talk to Trey like PD, and I will get back to you, yeah. and I guess maybe episode two will be the follow-up with Trey like PD, maybe. Yeah, hopefully, uh, the interview tomorrow will, re- uh, you know, yield some kind of result. Exactly, I'm hoping. So, thanks everybody for listening to the first part of Carissa Shell's story, and I hope next time we have some more answers for you guys. Take care. All right, guys, bye. All right, well, I wanted to let everybody know about this really great nonprofit organization. It's called Bad Rap. And they kind of, they started in 1999, and um, they started with rescuing pit bulls, actually. Um, they provide all kinds of services now um, for the owners, as well as shelters and other authorities, like, you know, the police, um, in cases of, like, abuse, situation like that. Um, they might sound familiar, because they're actually the ones that uh, took Michael Vick's dogs, you know, the ones that all got confiscated? Oh, yeah, what that case he had. Yes, so they took all of those pit bulls and they evaluated them and kind of just helped the authorities place them in homes, the ones that were placeable. Yeah, unless they so, had to be put away. Yeah, I'm sure some did have to be put down. Yeah. So, as of now, what they do is they offer free training, vaccinations, microchips, and even on-site spay and neuters for the underserved communities in the East Bay. Oh, wow. Yeah, and if you guys are interested in maybe adopting from them, go check out their website. It's badrap.org, or you can email them at contact at badrap.org. Um, and go check them out on the website. You can also place donations there. They have so many great programs that are making it so so many dogs aren't getting euthanized every year. Yeah, it's, oh, that's great. Yeah, it's, it's in the millions. It's ridiculous how many dogs and even cats that are adoptable that just get put down because there aren't enough homes for them. Yeah. What is it, three days? Yeah, well, that, I think so. Well, like, it's 72 hours before uh, they can put them up for adoption or in heavy kill areas. That's how long it takes to put them asleep, um, or put them to sleep. So we want to obviously avoid that, and that's why these little uh, organizations are so important to help the pet population, and spaying and neutering pets. Of course. So you guys, please check them out, support them. them. Yeah, they're awesome. They provide great services. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, And thank you for listening. Bye! Hi, my name is Athena. I'm calling about a case. I have the case number. I'm not sure if this is correct, but it's 11-002. It's about the disappearance of Carissa Shell. That's S-C-H-E-L-L. Um, I have some information, and I'm just wondering if you guys had ever questioned the people that last saw her. Um, I've done an interview with the brother, and I have some information. Uh, I'm hoping I can talk to one of the detectives. I'm not sure who's involved detective-wise because there's so many different people listed. 
Um, so again, my name is Athena. I do a podcast called Von- Vanished in the Valley. I'm working with Carissa's brother to, I guess, try to figure out what happened to her. Um, so if you could call me back again, my number is 925-658-8658. Oh my god, guess who finally called me back? the detective the Turlock PD detective so next time I come out I know right I'm like super shocked and I'm happy about that so when I come out there next get ready to record episode 2 of Carissa Shell because now I'm talking to this detective so I think we yes yes I have his name and he I got some information and there's some more random coincidences that you're not even going to believe so it's all going to be recorded for uh, the second part of Carissa Shell's story so we'll get it recorded I'll see you soon alright bye